Thursday, April 7th, and this is VOA's International Edition. I am Chinedua for in Washington. Coming up in the next half hour. Ukraine says Russia is preparing for a new offensive as officials collect evidence of alleged Kremlin atrocities. The Pentagon sees these battalions after they get resupplied going back into Ukraine, and all evidence is pointing that they will try to further target the Donbass region in the east. The UN says recent measures by El Salvador to rein in gang violence violates international human rights law. The UN Human Rights Office is critical of the harsh crackdown on gangs by the government since it declared a state of emergency on March 27th. And a rare video of a wanted Al-Qaeda chief appears as evidence he's still alive. We'll have these stories and more next on International Edition. Stay tuned. Analysts say the Kremlin is preparing for a new offensive in Ukraine as the country gathers its dead and collects evidence of alleged Russian atrocities. Ukrainian officials have stepped up calls for civilians to evacuate from towns near the front line ahead of the anticipated push in the east as some essential services are being moved away. For more on how the Pentagon is preparing for the expected Russian offensive, I spoke with VOA's Pentagon correspondent Carla Bob. The Pentagon sees these battalions after they get resupplied going back into Ukraine, and all evidence is pointing that they will try to further target the Donbass region in the east. There have been increased airstrikes there in the east, while the airstrikes have waned around Kiev, Chernihiv, that area, and they've seen more military action on the ground there as well. So that is the expectation that the Pentagon has. And that is why we saw that additional $100 million in military aid go out overnight, because the Pentagon saw that the Ukrainians needed more equipment. The Ukrainians were asking for more equipment, javelins in particular. Those are those anti-armor, anti-tank weapons that they used to target Russian tanks. They needed more of those. And so they made a decision to go ahead and get that additional equipment to the Ukrainians to help prepare them for a tougher, longer fight in the East. Is the Pentagon planning anything special to counter the suspected Russian offensive? I was pushing a senior defense official on that very topic just recently. And I said, you know, you can clearly see that the Russians are planning to strike again. Is there anything that you can do to prevent them from going back inside Ukraine when they leave and go to Belarus to resupply? And the senior defense official says, you're not going to put U.S. forces on the ground in Ukraine. They can do everything else possible when it comes to supplying and aiding and helping the Ukrainians. But the U.S. military at this point is just not going to go in. And short of that, short of actually having having U.S. boots on the ground, you can't really stop Russia from invading. The Secretary of Defense, Lloyd Austin, and the top U.S. general, General Mark Milley, were testifying in front of lawmakers this week. And they were asked, was there anything that could stop Russia? And they told lawmakers only U.S. troops on the ground might could have prevented an invasion. But by putting those U.S. troops on the ground in Ukraine, that would have almost guaranteed a conflict with Russia. And General Mark Milley said that was not something that he would advise because the U.S. is a nuclear power and Russia is a nuclear power. And should they come, you know, in a conflict with each other, then we could be talking about a nuclear world war. That's VOS Pentagon correspondent Carla Bob speaking with me from Washington. The UN General Assembly will vote Thursday on whether to suspend Russia from the UN's premier human rights body. 
The move was initiated by the United States in response to the discovery of hundreds of bodies after Russian troops withdrew from towns near the Ukrainian capital Kyiv, which has sparked calls for its forces to be tried for war crimes. The resolution's approval requires a two-thirds majority of assembly members that vote, quote, yes, unquote, or no, unquote. For more, I spoke with VOS UN correspondent Margaret Bashir. What the United States, Britain, the European Union, and several other countries are asking is that Russia, which is currently serving a three-year term on the Human Rights Council, which ends in December 2023, they're saying, forget about it. They should not be allowed to continue to serve out that term because of the atrocities that are happening in Ukraine. And how is Russia reacting to this call for this vote on Thursday? Well, all along, Russia has dismissed accusations of abuses and atrocities and it says it's either all fake news, Western hysteria, or they blame the Ukrainians and say they committed the abuses to make the Russians look bad. So they've tried to take a very cavalier attitude about it, but they're increasingly becoming isolated at the United Nations amongst uh, the international community. And if this vote holds tomorrow, and if it passes, what does that mean for Russia? It means that they will not be allowed to serve out their three-year term on the Human Rights Council. But they could come back to the Human Rights Council eventually, but that would also require a vote of the General Assembly to list the suspension. And we actually saw this back in 2011 when Muammar Gaddafi was still in charge in Libya and when he launched his brutal crackdown against Arab Spring protesters, the UN General Assembly basically voted unanimously. They did it by consensus and they agreed to suspend Libya's membership in the Human Rights Council. But about eight months later, after he was ousted from power, he was eventually killed in the streets by the people and a new government was installed the General Assembly voted overwhelmingly to let Libya come back to the Human Rights Council. Are you expecting any surprises tomorrow? Does Russia still have any friends who might vote in favor of Russia? Well, I think we could see a lot of abstentions possibly during the vote on Thursday. The last two votes that have happened in the General Assembly, the first one was to condemn the war, and there were about 35 abstentions on a humanitarian resolution. And again, there were about 38, I believe, abstentions. So there's still a group, solid group of countries that don't seem to want to kind of take a side in this fight. And we might even see that grow when it comes to something like kicking a country out of a human rights body. I mean, I could see where China, Eritrea, Pakistan, Venezuela, some of the human rights offenders who are on the Human Rights Council might vote against this on Thursday, for instance. So I think they'll have more support than we've seen previously. Previously, they've only had literally about four or five countries take their side, the Russians. They expect it might be a little bit larger of a group on Thursday. But I do expect that this resolution will be adopted. That's VOS UN correspondent Margaret Bashir speaking with me from New York. The first trial for war crimes in Darfur, Sudan, opened this week at the International Criminal Court in Hague. Ali Kushab, also known as Ali Mohammed Ali Abdi Rahman, is accused of leading a Janjaweed campaign that killed more than 200,000 people in Darfur almost 20 years ago. Elise Kepler is the Associate Director of the International Justice Program at Human Rights Watch. She tells Carol Van Dam the case is significant on many levels. There has never been a prosecution 
of a leader on these crimes. There have been just maybe even a very small amount of very, very small level people domestically, but there has never been serious accountability for these crimes. Now, obviously, this is one trial, uh, not many trials, and, and hopefully this is beginning, not an end. But for the first time, the victims are having the chance to see justice delivered for and, and unfolded, uh, advanced for these horrific crimes. What did you take away from the first day with the uh, opening statements? There were a few things that really stuck out on the opening day. Um, one was just the breath of the brutality of the crimes committed. The prosecution talked about you know, the killings, the sexual violence, uh, a woman who was shot uh, and, and her baby still breastfeeding as she was shot, people who were executed, people who sexual violence picking out women to um, be chosen for sexual violence, the uh, the quote unquote kind of more, more attractive um, women, um, just kind of uh, really devastation caused by the crimes in Darfur and specifically the evidence that the prosecution intends to put forward about Kashib's role. Kashib was a leader of the militias at the time referred to as the Janjaweed who were notorious for working hand in glove with the gov Sunni's government to attack villages across Darfur uh, based on the ethnicity of the villagers. The prosecution indicated that they have evidence not only was Kashib commanding role of these militias committing these abuses, but that he himself also physically committed abuses. Plus, Elise Kepler, Associate Director of International Justice Program of Human Rights Watch. She was speaking with my colleague, Carol Van Dam in New York. A rare video has appeared of Al-Qaeda chief praising an Indian Muslim woman who in February defied a ban on wearing the traditional headscarf or hijab. The footage is the first proof in months that Ayman al-Zawahiri is still alive. Rumors of his death has persistently circulated. In the video released on Tuesday and translated by the site intelligence group, the reclusive al-Qaeda chief praises Muskan Khan, the woman who defied a ban on the wearing of the hijab in schools in Indian southwestern state of Karnataka. There is no clear indication in the video of the whereabouts of al-Zawahiri. For more on this story and other breaking news, visit our website at vonews.com. Remember to connect with us on social media. We are on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Search for VOA Africa. You are listening to VOA's International Edition. I am Chinedrofo in Washington. The UN Human Rights Office says recent measures taken by El Salvador's government to rein in gang violence violates international human rights law. Lisa Schlein reports for VOA from Geneva. UN officials acknowledge the threat gang violence poses to Salvadoran society and the need to tackle it. But they say a series of measures recently taken by the government in response to the rise in gang killings is not in line with international human rights law. The UN Human Rights Office is critical of the harsh crackdown on gangs by the government since it declared a state of emergency on March 27th. It reports police 
recent military forces have used excessive force against gang members. It notes that more than 5,700 people have been detained without an arrest warrant, and some reportedly have been subjected to cruel and inhumane treatment. Human rights spokeswoman Liz Throssell says certain amendments to criminal law and procedure appear to breach international law and weaken due process guarantees. Criminal trials can now be held in absentia in the case of alleged gang members or presided over by so-called faceless judges, and that's judges uh, whose identity remains confidential. Uh, the previous two-year limit to pre-trial detention has been eliminated. Teenagers associated with gangs who were found guilty of serious offences may now be sentenced as adults. What is particularly troubling, she says, is children will have to serve their sentences in adult rather than juvenile detention. And under the new law, she notes, the period juveniles will have to spend in prison has been extended. Those aged 12 to 16 must now serve 10 years terms of imprisonment instead of seven years. And those aged 16 to 18 years must serve 20 year terms. Now, we recognize the challenges posed by gun violence in El Salvador and the state's duty to ensure security and justice. However, it is imperative that this is done in compliance with international human rights law. News reports also say Salvadoran President Nayib Bukele has threatened to cut off food to imprison gang members if gangs unleash a wave of crimes. He earlier ordered that food for them be cut to two meals per day. The president has also ordered construction of a maximum security prison to house 20,000 gang members. Throssel says her office is seeking information from Salvadoran authorities as to what they have done to comply with their human rights obligations during the state of emergency. She adds that certain rights continue to apply even during this critical period. Lisa Schlein for VOA News, Geneva. Every year, Muslim Americans donate millions of dollars to Islam-based charities in the United States during the holy month of Ramadan. The religion stipulates that Muslims must donate 2.5% of their wealth once a year to help the poor and needy called zakat, an Arab term meaning, quote, that which purifies, unquote. The Muslim American Society, or MAS, is a religious, educational, social, and charitable grassroots organization in the state of Virginia. While charity is a major practice of the organization, it becomes a priority during the month of Ramadan. Salah Ahmed, an active volunteer with the center, explained to VOA senior analyst Mohammed El Shinawi why the month of Ramadan represents the top month of giving to the poor for Muslims. The month of Ramadan is one of the blessed months in Islam. That's the month where Muslims pay zakah for their money, for their wealth, that their annual zakah on their money. In addition to that, Prophet Muhammad والسلام, taught us that giving to charity, not only in the month of Ramadan, but throughout the year. And we learned that Prophet Muhammad والسلام, he was the most generous in the month of Ramadan. And that's why most Muslims are really trying to follow the steps of our beloved Prophet Muhammad So how do charity contributions are collected by Muslim organizations in the U.S.? Most of it is really happening in the masajid and through the organizations. We leverage the technology nowadays. For example, we have online campaigns. We also leverage the tools of people paying through credit card, cash, reaching out in massive campaign through software. Also during salah, in Jum'ah prayer, and also during taraweeh, during the last 10 nights of Ramadan. We ask people for donation for specific cause, for example, example, to provide iftar, 
to help the orphans, not only within the United States, but also overseas. We try to help as much as we can across the globe. With inflation and a tough job market in the United States, did charity collections suffer a decline? Actually, did not. I'm really just amazed. If the people are continuing to giving to charity, continue to help. And yes, I understand inflation is big, but people still have jobs and the people who still have a will and beliefs that helping others, that is really helping themselves. So uh, we really not seeing an impact. Actually, on the contrary, we see more people are giving, not to help just uh, the local community, but the community at large. With the flow of Afghan refugees to the United States, does the center give them a priority in charity giving? Many organizations provided services, provided with campaign collections towards our brothers and sisters that arrived from Afghanistan. I know there was a collection of new clothes, food in many centers. You know, I can name a few of them like Adam Center, like Darul Hijra. So there is a lot of organization really tried to help, to help them to adjust, but at least provide them the means to live day by day. Poverty does not know religion. When you are hungry, it doesn't matter what religion you are. Do Muslim Americans give charity to some non-Muslim poor? Oh, absolutely. I'll give you just an example of a Muslim American society, our mass, our community center, for example, that I volunteer there. We have every Wednesday, and I know Darul Hajra does, I know the Adam Center does, those are the big ones. For example, every Wednesday we have our food bank, and our food bank, anybody can come in. We provide them with bread, egg, meat, vegetables, fruits. And anybody can come in and, and collect. We see a lot of our brothers and sisters in humanity, Latinos. We see white, we see black. We see a lot of people coming in. They come through. It's a drive-through. They collect the food they want, and they go. We don't ask any question if you're Muslim or non-Muslim or whatever, as long as you have a need for food and we provide it to you. And that's the teaching of Islam, that you give the people who is in need and the hungry and keep an eye on your neighbor regardless of their faith. And our community center and all the Muslim organizations, they do the same thing. That's Salah Ahmed, an active volunteer with the Muslim American Society, speaking with my colleague, Mohammed El Shinawi. Hi, I'm Kim Lewis. Join me and a panel of journalists as we discuss the top stories of the week, including the discovery of bodies of civilians allegedly killed by Russian troops in Ukraine has sparked global outrage and calls for trials of the perpetrators, including Russian President Vladimir Putin. Join us for Issues in the News this Saturday and Sunday on The Voice of America. This is Science in a Minute. When looking at a likeness of the mighty Tyrannosaurus Rex, you can't help but be impressed with the beast's enormous imposing body, fierce face, and a mouth filled with razor-sharp teeth. But then you notice that the arms of this monster are so tiny in comparison that it's almost comical. Paleontologist Kevin Padian is often asked by his students at the University of California, Berkeley, why the arms of T-Rex were so short. Padian has released a new paper that suggests that the arms of the T-Rex may have shrunk through evolution as a form of protection. You see, T-Rexes hunted in packs. The paper proposes that as the pack devoured their fresh prey with such ferocity, there may have been a good chance that a member could get carried away and accidentally or purposely eat the arms of a pack mate. I'm VOA's Rick Pantaleo. 
Hello, I'm Carol Castiel, host of Encounter. Next up, our periodic U.S. politics update with veteran analysts John Fortier and Jim Kessler. They spar over U.S. policy to support Ukraine, isolate and punish Russia, the historic confirmation of the first black woman to the U.S. Supreme Court, and headwinds for Democrats in the run-up to the November midterm elections. That's Encounter this Saturday and Sunday on The Voice of America. Hello, I'm Kim Lewis. Join me and VOA's Carol Van Dam for a special edition of Press Conference USA. Our guest is Jan Eglin, Secretary General of the Norwegian Refugee Council. He offers his perspective and solutions on some of the world's most complex humanitarian crises, including the mounting crisis in Ukraine. Join us for PC USA this Saturday and Sunday on The Voice of America. They're still trying to figure out what are the specific policies from the White House. VOA Asia, your daily digest of top Asia stories. Beijing has especially hazardous levels of air pollution. Blending American and Asian perspectives. China is protecting wildlife. Original reports and series. Education, health, technology. Stories that mean something to your daily life. VOA Asia. international edition on the voice of america on behalf of the entire production team thank you so much for listening visit our website for in-depth coverage of all events and news 24 hours a day at voanews.com until next time i am chinero from washington wishing you a wonderful day editorial reflecting the views of the United States government. On March 21st, Secretary of State Antony Blinken declared that the Burmese military government committed genocide against the Rohingya minority. There is such a thing as a path to genocide. That's the groundwork for genocide. The fact that it is laid far in advance over years, even decades, through a steady process of dehumanization and demonization, said Secretary Blinken. The Rohingya, who had been an integral part of Burma's society for generations, saw their rights, saw their citizenship methodically stripped away. In 1962, the Burmese military staged a coup and soon thereafter began to demonize and persecute Rohingya and other ethnic minorities. The government stripped Rohingya of their citizenship, conducted campaigns of terror, rape and murder against them, and destroyed their communities, then forced them into camps for the displaced. There were strong parallels between events in Burma that historically led to genocide elsewhere, said Secretary Blinken. Rohingya were compared to fleas, to thorns, to an invasive species, just as Tutsis were compared to cockroaches and Jews to rats and parasites. And while today's determination of genocide and crimes against humanity is focused on Rohingya, it's also important to recognize that for decades, the Burmese military has committed killings, rape and other atrocities against members of other ethnic and religious minority groups. Reports of these abuses are widespread, they're well documented, they've occurred in states across Burma. 
The United States strongly supports the independent investigative mechanism for Myanmar as it collects, preserves, and analyzes evidence of the most serious international crimes in Burma. Even as we lay the foundation for future accountability, we're also working to stop the military's ongoing atrocities, press for the release of all those unjustly detained, support the people of Burma as they strive to put the country back on the track to democracy, said Secretary Blinken. The United States also continues to provide significant support to help meet the humanitarian needs of Rohingya and all affected by their persecution. Nearly $1.6 billion since 2017 for everything from shelter and education, specialized mental health and psychosocial support for the victims of trauma. The case files are growing. The independent investigative mechanism for Myanmar alone has collected more than 1.5 million items of evidence and information, including witness testimonies, documents, messages, photos, videos, geospatial imagery, social media pages, said Secretary Blinken. The day will come when those responsible for these appalling acts will have to answer for them. That was an editorial reflecting the views of the United States government. This is the voice of America. Washington, bop, 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 